Okay, folks, we are we're in Lesson 7, Paul's Defense of the Gospel. And we're going to continue on. He's going to continue trying to share with these Galatian believers what does it truly mean to be a Christian and how are you truly accepted by God? Because they've been confused. They've been confused by these Judaizers, these so-called Jewish Christians, who are saying that acceptance with God is based upon doing certain things. And for these Judaizers, it was being circumcised, eating certain foods, and keeping certain festival days, new moons, and so forth, keeping the law. So Paul comes along and he says to them, guys, you are so far off. How can you, if you could not do anything for salvation, how can you keep salvation by doing these things? How can you gain acceptance with God when the only thing that gains you acceptance with God is Jesus? So he's trying to give them a defense of the gospel. And so let's, uh, let's get right into it today. Let's look at verses 26 and 29. We're going to talk about the standing of believers. Look with me at chapter 3. Verse 26, he writes, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were baptized in Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So first of all, the standing of believers here. First of all, Paul declares that the believers are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul declares that the believers are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So the first thing he's going to say, point out to them is, is, and maybe you need to grasp this reality here, is that you are a son of God or a daughter of God for you ladies here. You are a son of God. You have you are part of God's family. And, and how you entered into that family is through what, folks? Faith in who? Jesus Christ. Now, let me just stop for a moment. I, I delineated this a little bit last week in the message. I'll help you understand a little bit. Faith and belief are not necessarily the same thing. Does everybody understand that? Because you can believe something but not have faith in it. Does everybody understand me? You can believe something and not have faith. So simply saying you believe in Jesus is not enough for your salvation. It needs to be a faith commitment to Jesus. You say, what do you mean? Explain it to me a little bit. Okay. So for instance, if I go to the doctor and I got a problem, and I go in there and I know that this doc, I look on his wall, and he's got all these diplomas everywhere, credentials, licenses, what associations he belongs to, I can believe that he's got the stuff to do it, right? Now, it's another question of whether or not I trust him to do it, right? You know what I mean? I can believe he's got the, he can handle the problem. But it's whether or not I trust that he can handle the problem. How many of you have met doctors you didn't trust? Right. Now, did you believe they got the skills? You maybe didn't. <laughs> okay. But here's, here's my point I want you to see. There's a difference between belief and trust. Now, the problem today in America is, with Christianity in America today, we just think that you just simply need to believe and you're okay. It's more than just belief, my friends. Salvation comes through faith and it's a complete trust in who? Jesus. 
and what He did for you. And when you put your complete trust in, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says, you become a what? Son of God. You become a part of God's family. So that you see that aspect of our standing. Now here's, here's going to talk about our righteousness here. Look at verse 27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking about the issue of righteousness. Those who believe in Christ have been clothed with Christ's righteousness. It's very common today in our culture to think that everybody is okay. That everybody at the heart of themselves is what? Good. It's, it's very common today. So, so even, you know, you go to funerals today and everybody's making it. Have you noticed that? Everybody's going to make it because everybody's essentially good. And, and, and it's because we have this standard in our life today, in our culture, that says, well, you know, I'm not an axe murderer. I'm not a pedophile. I haven't, I haven't really, I'm not an Osama bin Laden or an Adolf Hitler. I haven't really done those bad things, so I'm okay. It doesn't matter that I cheated on my wife or my, my husband. I'm okay. It doesn't matter that I stole from my boss. I'm okay. It doesn't matter that I don't do the speed limit in town. You know, I'm okay. The problem is, is that you're not okay. We have a sense of self-righteousness in the church, especially. Say, so, you know what the sin? Everybody knows what the sins of the world are, right? Because we condemn them. Do you know what the sin of the church is, folks? What's the sin of the church? Self-righteousness thinking that we're better. And the reality is, is we're not better. We're all wicked. We all deserve to go to hell. None of us are good. Now, here's what Paul's saying. When you come to Jesus Christ through faith, you not only become a son of God, but here's what happens. You then are clothed with a righteousness that's not your own. See, if you were to stand before God on your own, what would he see, folks? Your sin. Isn't it Isaiah is the one who said it, that your righteousness is but as what? Filthy rags. And the term that's used there for rags is a term that is used to reference a very dirty rag. And because of that, I mean unclean, because of that, it's almost he's... There's nothing good in any of us. You can't stand before God. So your standing with God is because of who? Jesus, His righteousness. So when you stand before Him, it's not because of you. Everybody understand what I'm saying? It's because of who? Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go on now. That's, that's the second part of our standing. Here's the nature of our standing. There is no earthly distinction for those who are in Christ. Look with me at verse 28. This is a great verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, have you noticed that nothing has changed? Back then, the world was divided between two types of people, Jews and Gentiles, as far as Paul was concerned. In that day, it was also divided between those who were free and those who were born slaves. The world is also divided into two types of people even now, male and female. 
And because of that, have you noticed that because the world divides people up into groups, and the United States does the same thing, doesn't it? We have groups here too. We have, we have people who are management, people who are workers. We have people who are educated. We have people who are uneducated. We have people who are rich. We have people who are poor. We have people in between. We have people who are, have a certain ethnicity. We have people who are white. We have people who, uh, I mean, it goes on and on, doesn't it? And have you noticed that when you're in a certain group, you get treated a certain way? Have you noticed that? You know? I mean, okay, whether you agree with the equal rights movement or not, that is a reaction of women because of the way they felt they were being treated in this country. Period. Okay? Whether you agree with the civil rights movement or not, that's a reaction to how it's all reflecting that in our culture, in our humanity, we treat people differently based upon what? What group they belong to. It was no different in Paul's day. So Paul's saying, though, with Christianity, is there any distinctions? None. See, with Jesus, it doesn't matter what your education level is. With Jesus, it doesn't matter whether you're a male or a female. With Jesus, it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. Do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't matter what your job is or isn't. It doesn't matter if you're on relief or not. What matters to Jesus is, do you know him? And if you know him, you're a son of God. And everybody, it's, you know, you've heard that, the, that the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. How many of you have heard that statement before? That's so true. Because there is no distinction. So some of you here, this may help some of you out, because some of you here, you feel yourselves like red-headed stepchildren. You say, oh yeah, I'm part of God's family, but I'm a red-headed stepchild. Meaning, he doesn't have any time for me. Or he doesn't accept me for who I am. Can I be honest with you? When you, when you wrestle or entertain those kind of thoughts, you, it's bad theology. It's not in the Bible. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not in the Bible. When we start putting these distinctions, those kind of distinctions are rooted in our what? Culture. It's not in the Bible. God accepts you for who you are, not because of you, but because of what Jesus has done. Do you understand what I'm saying? How many of you are grasping? How many of you are saying, I can't get it, George. I'm not getting it. How many of you are not getting it? How many of you say, I got it. I understand it. Okay, let's move on, George. Here's what else he's saying. Remember when I told you what the promise was? The promise was of an inheritance. And it came through Abraham. And the promise was that through Abraham... His seed, through his seed, remember what Paul said, the seed was who? Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, all the nations would be blessed. And here's what he's saying. Those who believe in Christ are Abraham's seed and heirs to his promise. My friends, do you realize you're a son and daughter of Abraham? Do you realize that? Spiritually, you're a son and daughter to Abraham. And you are an heir to his promise. Now don't, that's future. Now don't go over to Israel and say, I'm here to stake my claim. I want my land. They'll, they'll throw you out. Now, he goes on now, he's going to talk about the legal right of an heir. Look with me at chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all 
but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, and God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir of God through Christ. So let's talk about your legal rights as an heir. First of all, Paul stresses that an heir is no different from a slave as a child. Isn't that true? And he's looking at everyday life in his world. Most of the people are slaves. So if, if a child is born to a free man and he has slaves, that child is going to play with the children of those slaves. Are they going to notice any distinction? No. You know, the greatest group of kids to play with are elementary school kids, aren't they? Because elementary school kids don't know the cultural differences in people yet. Have you noticed that? So they'll chum around with a child of a rich kid and a child of a poor kid, and they'll play together there. And it isn't until they get to high school that all of a sudden we start realizing, and high school is the extreme of it, where we start realizing the cliques and everything, and who to hang out with, the jocks hang out with, the brains head out over here. And, you know, when I was in school, it was the dopers over here, you know. And, and you know, I mean, there's probably different names for them now, and the nerds, you know, and all that stuff. Now, listen to me. Have you noticed with children, that doesn't exist. It's as they get older, they understand that. See, this is what his point is. He's saying, for an heir... When they're a child, they're no different than a slave. They're no different than a slave. In fact, a lot of children think they are slaves because they're constantly being told what? What to do, right? Okay, let's go on. The heir was under the authority and instruction of tutors. So the heir was under the authority and the instruction of tutors. Notice what he says, verse 2, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. So, the father is going to leave the heir, the son or the daughter, in the care of others until an appointed time. And usually that appointed time is where, especially in our culture today, when is the appointed time? When they turn 18? High school is done. Then they're supposed to go on and get on with life, right? But they don't, not anymore now. They go away to college and then they come back. You know, what did you do with my room? You know, you had plans for that room, but they, they, they decided something else. And here's, here's something else. Here's what he's saying. Paul points out that it was for a limited time. It was for a limited time. That tutelage, that tutoring was for a limited time. Now, he's going to go on and talk, try to make the comparison to our past situation. Paul refers to our time as unbelievers. Look at verse 3. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. So here's talking about you and I as unbelievers. All right? That at, we were in bondage to the elements of the world. And here's what it's saying. At, at that time, we were enslaved to the basic principles of the world. Before you knew Jesus, 
your whole mode of operandi, the way that you operated in this world, was based upon what the culture said, what Satan influenced you to do, and what your body wanted. Does everybody understand me? That's from Ephesians. You were guided by your flesh, the world, and Satan. Bottom line. And so at that time you were enslaved to that. Now, he goes on and he says this. Verse 4 and 5, he's going to talk about how God divinely intervened in our lives. So let me just stop for a moment. Does anybody realize that salvation really has nothing to do with you? It is the initiative of God, even in your life. We say, I responded. Okay, well, let me ask you something. Who brought the person by who shared the gospel with you? Who? Huh? Yeah, the Lord. How many of you said, I want somebody to come by and share Jesus with me? Nobody. From the very first time. In fact, let me explain something to you. The average number of times for a person to respond to the gospel is at least seven times. I think it's more now, maybe 15 or 21 times. So now you understand why Paul says, one what sows, one waters, one reaps. Okay, so it takes many times. So let me ask you something. How many times, like, you know, I think about my life, you know, as a freshman engineering student at the University of South Carolina, 1984, I'm in class. I didn't get up that day and say, hey, send somebody by, God. And that day when I go to class, I meet a fellow by Ray, who would then share with me about a Bible study a few months later, and after that Bible study that I came to Christ. I didn't ask for Ray. First, I thought Ray was pretty irritating. Did you understand what I'm saying? Here's what I'm trying to say to you. It's the initiative of God. It's His initiative in your life. So here's what He's saying. The coming occurred at the right time. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, when Jesus came to this world, my friends, the time was right. That was the moment he needed to come. Listen, in fact, there's a principle there. When he comes the next time, the time will be right when he comes the next time. Oh, let me just stop for a moment. We talk about when he comes next. I'm, I, I was in, Lori and I were in the airport this week, and a guy was reading their book called 2012. And I thought, what in the world is that? 2012. Then I read below it what the Bible says about his coming. Oh, another book that's making a prediction. And then I got something in the mail. Somebody didn't leave their name, but I read it anyhow. Told me that Jesus is coming back in May of 2011. Now, you say, well, don't you take that kind of stuff serious? No, because on my bookshelf, I have a book that says 88 reasons why he'll come back in 88. It was followed by the next bestseller, 89 Reasons Why He'll Come Back in 89. That was 20 years ago, isn't it, friends? He hasn't come back yet. He's coming back. But we're not to know the time. I'm really not worried about it. Because as long as I'm alive, he has something for us to do, right? Something for me to do, something for you to do, as long as you're alive. And we've got to recognize that he's going to come back in his time. So, in the fullness of time, this coming occurred at the right time. Okay? Here's the understanding. God sent his son. God sent his son is what Paul's saying here. 
He sent His Son at the right time for you and I. And so then He goes on and says this, Jesus was born of a woman and was subject to the law. Isn't that interesting? He was born of a woman, we know that, virgin birth. And was Jesus subject to the law as a child? Yeah, the Bible tells us very clearly that he subjected himself to his parents. Did he have to do that? No, he's God. He didn't have to do that. But he did. He subjected himself to the law. And I think there's a reason why he subjected himself to the law, because he kept it perfectly. Because he was without what? Sin. Okay, so he was sinless. All right, now, the purpose of his coming, he came in order to redeem those who were in bondage to the law. Now, here's why he came. He came to redeem who? Us, who were in bondage to the law. Because the law exposes, remember we talked about this last week, the law exposes what about me? How bad I am. You know? I mean, remember I gave you the illustration of the speed limit sign here in town? It says 25. And, you know, and, and, and here I am, I'm driving, and, and I want to listen to that great philosopher, Sammy Hager. I can't drive 55, you know? And, and, and it's, every time the speed limit sign in town shows me how bad I am. And how bad I am is, is I'm, at my heart, wicked. And I need somebody else. Who? Jesus. So, Jesus came in order to redeem us who were under the bondage to the law. Now, here's the benefit. He came and redeemed us so that we could become adopted sons. Isn't that interesting? He came and redeemed us so that, listen to me folks, so that you could become an adopted son or daughter of God. Isn't that wonderful? Now, you understand something. Our concept of adoption in the U.S. is a little bit different than the concept of the adoption during Paul's day. Let me explain to you what happened in Paul's day. If you were adopted as a son in Paul's day, Literally, if you were, and it happened quite often, this was a common Roman practice, when they would do adoption, literally, your identity became the identity of who you were adopted in. You, you got their name. You say, what happens today? You got all their privileges. It was as if you were a natural part of their family. It was never viewed as you being someone else. You were a part of them. Period. And so when he talks about you being adopted, think about that for a moment. It's as if you were never not a part. Isn't that a wonderful thing? It's not like God's going to say, well, you know, there they are. I took care of that, but boy, they sure were a mess before I got them. He doesn't think that way. Because when you're adopted into the family of God, it's almost as if you were always a part of the family of God. Do you understand? Always. So, he came to redeem us so that we could become adopted sons. Now, look at the work of the Spirit, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Okay, first of all, as sons, God sent his Spirit into our hearts. The Holy Spirit's in your heart, into your life. Now, let me just stop for a moment. When we talk about heart, I'm not talking about that muscle that's pumping all that blood through your body. In 
the mindset of the New and Old Testament writers. The Jewish mindset was that the heart was the essence of who you were. Does everybody understand me? The essence of who you are is what we're talking about here. So, the Spirit comes into the essence of who you are. Do you understand? Because the essence of who you are, do you realize you are a spirit inhabiting what? Flesh. Okay, so the, the Spirit comes into your life, not just that muscle there. Okay? Now, here's what it goes on. The Spirit moves the believer to call God Abba, Father. Now, it's interesting to me, the translators leave it Abba, which is the Greek word. Do you know what it means? Daddy. Okay? It would have been great if it's just translated Daddy. Here's what it's saying. The Spirit moves you and I to address the Heavenly Father as who? Daddy. Now, now I don't know about you, but you know, I grew up in the South, and that's a common term. I remember, I'm a 20, I mean, my dad died when I was 20, but I can remember as a 20-year-old, we're still referring to him as who? Daddy. Didn't call him Dad. Remember the day my, my uh, brother called him Pop, and my dad said, I'll pop you. And, uh, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it was a term of affection, Daddy. It's a term of, it's, it's an intimate term. Does everybody understand me? It's an intimate term. What's he saying here? The Spirit moves us into an intimacy with who? God. So, let me just stop for a moment. So some of you here, you're wrestling with who you are. You're wrestling whether or not he accepts you. The Bible's clearly saying to you, you're his son. You're his adopted son. It's as if you were never not a part of his life. He's saying to you, you can come to him and cry out to him, Daddy. Does that sound like somebody who's got a problem with you? Who's rejecting you? It sounds like he's trying to communicate it that you are what? Accepted by God. Is it because of you, though? No, it's because of who? Jesus. Now, here's the reason why he's doing that. Because he's dealing with Christians, Galatian Christians, who are being influenced to think that as long as they're doing certain stuff, they're accepted by God. Now, here's the problem. You're not accepted by God because of the certain stuff you do. You're only accepted by God because of what? What Jesus has done. And so listen to me. Here's what he's saying. Because of that, why are you bothering trying to earn the love that is already there? That's what he's trying to show them. The love's already there. The acceptance is already there. The intimacy is already there. It's already there. And look, you say, boy, those Galatians, they, boy, they need to wise up. Yeah, but how many of you operate the same way? Didn't do my devotions this week. We'd love to give something to the people in Haiti, but, man, you don't know what my bills are this week. God, you're not going to accept me because I can't give. Isn't that the way we operate, folks, isn't it? And we think that God grades us on a scale. Here's what Paul's trying to say to you. Your acceptance with God is not based on you. It's based on who? Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Based on Jesus. Now let's go on now. 
He's going to talk about our present standing. This is where we're going to end, verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Here's what he's saying. Paul tells us that because of Christ, we are no longer slaves, but sons. You're no longer a flunky. Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, here's the thing. We, slavery, we can't grasp in our mind, but some of you have worked for bosses where you, where you, you know your boss treated you like a piece of dirt. And you were just a piece of meat to get the job done. And whether you were there or not didn't matter to him. He would find somebody else. How many of you have been in a situation like that? Okay. Here's what I'm saying. So many of us think that, we, that God views us the same way. But here's what he's saying. Because of Jesus, you're not a flunky. You're a son. So guess what? When I go visit my mom in Columbia, South Carolina, do I wait for her to give me permission to raid the fridge? No. I go right to there. Oh, mom's got some nice ice cream. Whip me out a bowl and, you know, and I start eating. And, I, and hey, can I have some? I'm going to get some of this tea here. You need to make another pot. What's that? A son. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's, there's an intimacy and a comfort level there that I can go and do that. When you're a slave or a flunky, would you do that when you walked into a place? No. No, you wouldn't do that. See, this is the point he's making here. We are heirs. That's the relationship you have with God. So here's what he's saying. As sons, we are now heirs with Christ. Isn't that wonderful? You have a promise of what's to come. As sons, we're heirs with Christ. Okay. Next week, we're going to take a break. We're going to look at a video next week because I'm not going to be here. But the week after that, when we get to Lesson 8, we're going to talk about Paul's plea. He's going to plead with them now to turn away from legalism. He's going to plead with them from turning away from this whole concept of trying to earn their favor with God. And we're going to talk about that in Lesson 8. Okay, let's close our time in prayer and get ready for the one of worship.